My name is Mark Beatty, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. In this podcast, I'd like to highlight some of the content from the January edition of the journal. The first article I'd like to discuss is recognizing eosinophilic esophagitis as a cause of food bolus obstruction. Eosinophilic esophagitis is a chronic inflammatory disorder. Diagnosis is by strict histological criteria, which include greater than 15 eosinophils per high-power field in the upper, mid, and lower esophagus. The condition is increasingly recognized as a common and treatable cause of dysphagia, with a prevalence of 0.4 to 0.7%. Food bolus obstruction is a common presentation. In this edition of the journal, Natuli and colleagues report the outcome of a retrospective analysis of acute presentations, that's 313 episodes, multiple different clinical teams between 2008 and 2014. 200 required endoscopy, 80 had biopsies, and in 21 of them, new diagnoses of eosinophilic esophagitis were made. It's a very interesting paper to work through. The authors highlight the fact that in a high proportion, biopsies were not done, and suggest that if more patients had had biopsies, more diagnoses would have been made. The authors advocate a shared speciality protocol with routine endoscopy plus biopsies and standardized reporting. The importance is that if this condition is diagnosed, most patients respond well to treatment, and longer-term complications such as stricture formation can be avoided. There's an excellent accompanying editorial discussing recognition and early management. The second article I'd like to highlight this month is a systematic review of the diagnosis and management of catheter-related bloodstream infections in patients on home parental nutrition. We're all aware that catheter-related bloodstream infections remain a very important complication in patients on parental nutrition, particularly those at home, and as a key quality indicator of the success of their care. The target being to have a catheter-related bloodstream infection rate of less than 1 per 1,000 catheter days. This is, however, hugely variable, and dependent on many factors, including the health of the individual patient. In this well-evidenced and authoritative review, Bond and colleagues take us through the guidance for prevention, diagnosis, and management. It's really interesting to work through. It's straightforward to follow and pragmatic. It includes the need for multidisciplinary management and strict adherence to protocols. Tunneled central venous catheters are the line of first choice. Line looks should be considered, particularly in settings where catheter-related bloodstream infections are above average or in patients with recurrent infections. Torlidine is the first choice and alcohol the second choice. Paired central and peripheral cultures are essential when infection is suspected to avoid under-treatment and over-treatment. 
Line salvage is important, if possible, to minimize loss of line sites, and there's a useful definition of line salvage, which is highly predictive and includes negative blood cultures collected 48 hours post-treatment, plus no clinical or microbiological evidence of catheter-related bloodstream infections with an indistinguishable microorganism within 90 days of the end of treatment. The authors discuss common organisms, treatment strategies, and the indication for line removal. With the increase in use of home parental nutrition, and these patients being seen in many settings across a network, this article is essential reading to ensure that we offer the best and most evidence-based management, and it's editor's choice this month. The third article I'd like to highlight relates to how to manage acute liver failure. It's a great article. Acute liver failure is rare, but life-threatening. It's a clinical syndrome with multiple different etiologies. Liver transplantation is an important option. In this issue, Tavabi and Bernal discuss the definition, etiologies, presentation and treatment, including N-acetylcysteine administration for paracetamol poisoning, management of sepsis, management of coagulopathy, and the indication for liver transplantation. In the UK, paracetamol poisoning is the most common cause of acute liver failure. Worldwide, the most common cause is hepatitis E. Early recognition is essential with early transfer to a specialized unit, particularly if there is a persistently elevated INR and in the context of hepatic encephalopathy or other poor prognostic features. And there's a useful box in this paper listing the investigations at presentation. Indications for super-urgent liver transplantation listing for paracetamol poisoning and separately other causes are also listed. It's important to correctly select patients who need referral for liver transplantation because the outcome following risk-based assessment is 90% at 12 months. The third article I'd like to highlight relates to optimizing inflammatory bowel disease patient selection for de-escalation of anti-tumor necrosis factor therapy. This is complex and this is challenging, particularly in patients who are well and treatment has had a massive impact. The National Institute for Clinical Excellence recommends considering cessation of therapy after one year unless there's clear evidence of ongoing disease activity, although there are no detailed criteria. In this issue, Swan and colleagues report their real-world experience. That's what they actually did outside a controlled clinical trial. All patients on biologics were discussed at a biologics review panel and considered for a trial of therapy after 12 months and then annually. Patients with no suitable maintenance immunomodulator, previous surgery or evidence of active disease, additional indications for antitumor necrosis factor and previous relapse on a biologic were excluded in this analysis. 
Of 136 patients reviewed, 45 met the NICE criteria for cessation. A total of 27 following application of the Biologics Review Panel modifiers had a trial of treatment with a 20% relapse rate at two years. That, in essence, is a reasonable number properly selected getting off treatment. The challenge moving this forward is to refine the decision-making algorithm further to ensure that treatment is optimized while over-treatment and therefore potential toxicity is avoided. There's a sense in my mind that there is still much to learn about how best to optimize the use of monoclonal antibody therapy in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. This paper is one of, one of many that are contributing to this debate, and I think over the next five to ten years, we'll better sort this. The final paper I'd like to highlight relates to antibiotics and probiotics in IBD and when to use them. This is the sort of issue that we would assume there'd be clear evidence-based guidance. But actually, it's controversial and there is a lack of evidence base on which we decide how best to deal with this topic. So antibiotics and probiotics are often used in IBD. There are few randomized controlled trials. There are some key messages, however, in this paper. These include messages regarding the role of antibiotics in induction of remission, combination therapy in perianal disease, and their potential to reduce the risk of post-operative recurrence in Crohn's disease. This is well discussed, and there is clear evidence of efficacy for these three specific indications. The authors also discuss the role of antibiotic combinations in active acute ulcerative colitis, active pouchitis, and chronic refractory pouchitis. And the authors discuss specific regimes that should be used. Probiotics are more complex. The best evidence for probiotics is in pouchitis, acute and chronic, particularly VSL3. Data in other situations are inconsistent. There's more data for ulcerative colitis than Crohn's, but multiple confounders in most of the studies done. It's well worth working through this article, which does a great job of evidencing our practice and provides practical guidance and as such is essential reading for clinicians managing IBD. I hope very much that you enjoy this edition and enjoy these articles I've highlighted and the other content in the journal this month. My name is Mark Beattie, Editor-in-Chief of Frontline Gastroenterology. Thank you for listening and please feedback to me direct regarding content of the journal, ideas for submission and ideas for topics on which we should commission reviews. Thanks for listening.